If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is the Real Estate Podcast, the intersection between the latest trends in real estate and its impact on our everyday lives. We're your hosts, Alex Norman. And Jamie Blonde, and you've come to the right location. The real estate starts now. In today's episode, Urology Today, we explore the intersection between urology and the human condition. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Soloway, currently a urologist at Memorial Hospital in Hollywood, Florida. He's the former professor and chair, Department of Urology at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Dr. Soloway is recognized nationally and internationally for his contributions in urologic oncology. Among his many awards is the Gold Cystoscope Award, given annually to the urologist who contributed most to the specialty within 10 years of completing their residency. In 2015, he was awarded the St. Paul Medal by the British Association of Urology, an annual award given to an outstanding urologist outside of the United Kingdom. Dr. Soloway has published over 550 articles in peer-reviewed journals primarily related to prostate, bladder, and kidney cancer. He has lectured throughout the world on various aspects of cancer of the bladder and the prostate. He's still an active clinician and contributor to the urologic literature. Dr. Soloway completed his urologic oncology fellowship at the National Cancer Institute of the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Mark. Welcome to the show. Wow. Welcome to the show, Mark. Great to be with both of you and listeners worldwide, I guess. Mark, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, My parents were both in the medical arena. My dad, OBGYN doc, my mother, a nurse. So I had contact with the medical care. My father was beloved by his patients and So I was drawn to the field early on. I worked hard, studied hard, played hard, mostly basketball. But uh, I went to Northwestern University as pre-med. I was lucky to um, get out a year early. I never graduated college, but I went on to medical school in Cleveland. And I've been very lucky and fortunate to get into research early. And I love what I did. Urology is a great field. And I've been blessed. From Cleveland, I went to, of all places, Memphis, Tennessee, where I spent 15 years. I went there because the largest private hospital in the country, of all places, was in Memphis, Tennessee, 2,000-bed, extremely efficient Baptist Memorial Hospital. So it was a great start for me. I was a professor at the University of Tennessee, which was right across the street, the home of Elvis Presley, the blues. (laughs) It was a wonderful 15 years. 
There was not another urologist oncologist for a few states around. So I was busy from the get-go. And then 1991, when uh, Hurricane Andrew came, here came Soloway to uh, Miami, Florida. That was my intro. And uh, I was chair of the department there for 20 years. That's the short version. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Uh, so just for our listeners, the word urology has Greek origins, which basically means the study of urine. However, the words original meaning doesn't give any clues to that urology is arguably one of the most important areas in the medical field. And urology is vital because it encompasses the entire external and internal therapy and pathology of the urinary and genital tract. Plus, it touches upon other critical fields like internal medicine, dermatology, surgery, etc. Urology has been around for basically thousands of years, right? It's according to many, one of the first urological procedures was, was the circumcision. Ouch. Uh, and then eventually batters, bladder stones were studied and removed in ancient Greece. So urology is extremely important. And as our population ages, particularly in Florida, we want to bring awareness to some of the lesser known issues that affect us all. So Mark, we're honored to have you on the show. Can you tell us how you got and or selected urology as your field? Well, as I mentioned very important in medicine to me is to make almost all of your patients well. I mean, that's key. So uh, I wanted to do surgery, but I like the ability to diagnose, use the imaging, et cetera, and be your own specialist. So for instance, a I want to do surgery. And I did a project in neurosurgery in medical school. So I could actually I had to do a neurosurgical operation as a medical student on dogs and then monkeys. And, and actually, I went to Europe because my research. So I, so I got some good feeling, and I technically thought I could do it. But in neurosurgery, a lot of your, you do a great operation, and the patient has a stroke, and you say, oh, my God. But in urology, we can help 90% of our patients, even with relatively advanced cancer. And then there's no other person who does what we do. It's not like a general surgeon, a vascular surgeon and this kind of pet. Urologist is the only one that could use the cystoscope to look in the bladder. We do all the kidney work. Uh, we take care of the prostate, urinary tract infections, erectile dysfunction. So look at all the things that a urologist takes care of. Yeah, I'm so exciting when I know that I've got, I've got a problem and I got to go see my urologist. Well, things <laughs> are really looking up, aren't they? Let me ask you a question, Mark, just so I'm clear. Men and women, it's the same thing. A urologist treats both men and women, or do you treat more men than women? Where does the gynecologist fall into the whole equation? Well, probably 80% of a urologist patients are men because only the man has a prostate. The PSA, prostate-specific antigen, which is the way one diagnoses prostate cancer early. Again, that's a man's problem. Um, recurrent urinary tract infections and urinary incontinence problems would be more frequent in women. Uh, bladder cancer, which we'll talk about later, much more common, 75% of cases men, 25% women. So probably an erectile dysfunction. So those, we have a male problem. So that's why 75% of what a urologist sees are men, but we do see women with some of these other problems as well. Now, what about age? Uh, you know, I know that I've never been to a urologist and no one has ever said to me when I was growing up, son, go to urology, uh, uh, get a urology exam. And I know that the difference between, for the most part, 
women and perhaps gynecology, there's a bit of a, um, a the mother and, and daughter relationship. And for the most part, for us guys, it's about, you know, just, you know, slap on the back and walk it off. So at what point does urology or going to the urologist become important? At what age uh, for a man? So for men, the probably what brings people in, well, there are three things. One, urinary frequency, very common. You'd be surprised how many men drink a lot of coffee, drink a lot of beer, take caffeine-related products, drink two liters of liquids a day because someone they don't get dehydrated. Then they come and see me. I get two a day. Doctor, I'm getting up all night to urinate. I'm urinating frequently all day. What do you drink? Oh, I drink da-da-da-da. Well, come on now. You know, it's not your prostate. Your PSA is real low. Your prostate is small. You're drinking all that stuff. So there's a lot of misconception about how much one has to drink. So that's a very simple problem, but they go to a urologist. Next, PSA. You want to diagnose prostate cancer early? The word is clearly out because of so many superstars talked about prostate cancer. So African-American men, higher risk, they know they should start having their prostate checked at age 40. For a Caucasian, age 50. Family history, you get checked earlier. So we look at the PSA and make a decision how to evaluate the prostate gland. So those are a couple of the uh, answers to your questions. Well, you know, Alex had a great point, which was, I think he was trying to get on, which was that, you know, guys tend to be a little more, I can tough it out, I'll walk off the pain. I, I used to have this impression that women were smarter about seeing their doctors regularly and men were not just like some people avoid the dentist because they don't want to hear the bad news. So they never go to the dentist. Is Do you, in, in, your, in a field where 75% of your patients are men, do you notice that there is a trend that men, you have to a harder time convincing them to get regular checkups? Or is that a myth and a thing of the past? Well, in my practice, uh, men come in to be checked. Now, they may be pushed by their significant other that I can't vouch for because some of them will say that. So most, uh, I think increasingly, if you go to your primary doc and they find out either your uh, prostate-specific antigen PSA level is a little elevated or you have blood in the urine, they're going to send you to the urologist. And, and people will go because they may be alarmed by what the findings might be. So I don't see any reticence with either men or women once they see me. And some people obviously have heard about the PSA and will go directly to the urologist. So one or two avenues, we'll get them there. And I do not see this reluctance on men to come and see me. Yeah, I, I would I would add to that, right? And I, I normally don't quote Talladega Nights, but I, I remember Ricky Bobby once said, uh, I wake up, <laughs> <laughs> as I wake up in the morning and I piss excellence. And, uh, it just, <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. that quote. You know, it's it's general knowledge that for men, you know, how it works down there is is a broad indicator of our health overall, right? And so we want to make sure that everything works. And if it doesn't, then then we have a problem. Period. I think you know. So I I I, I want to say that people um, may only go to you when there's a problem. But is there a point in time where people should be maybe? checking in a bit more so that, um, so that so down the road things don't get out of hand? Sure. Well, that's what I emphasize. So there are two different scenarios. If someone wakes up and their urine is red 
or they ejaculate red in their semen, they're going to come in the next day. Wait, that's wait, that's emergency. bad? Uh, I got to talk to you offline later. So sorry, I'll talk later. <laughs> well, no, the answer is it's not bad. It never means cancer, but it sure either the partner is going to say, you get the hell over to the urologist, or the guy is going to come over scared that he's got cancer. But I just mentioned that because he said, there are certain things that you'll get in right away. If you have a kidney stone and you're in severe pain, you're going to see a urologist. We take care right. of that, for example. Now, on the other hand, I think men have been uh, awakened with this whole prostate cancer possibility because it's the most common, uh, very frequent cancer in men. It's number two beside lung cancer. In many areas, it's number one. And many men will come in and say, listen, I need to get my PSA checked or my PSA has been elevated and, and they'll come. So there is the awakening as opposed to bladder cancer where people tend not to come in early and that's an issue. So there are very differences between those two particular genital urinary complaints. Well, let's follow up on that a little bit because you're leading right into an area that I know is very important to you, which is bladder cancer. You make a great point. It seems to me in my, in my life, it seems like the first cancer that everybody heard about was lung cancer because that, that, that came about as everybody was smoking cigarettes and nobody realized they were bad for you. Um, and, then, and then women became very good at elevating breast cancer as, as an issue uh, for funding, for treatment, for early detection. And I think it felt like men followed through with prostate cancer, because as you say, every man, if you live long enough, your prostate will eventually develop issues and uh, you may or may not be be at a point in your life where it makes it, you have to treat it or not. But to the point of bladder, up until you and I spoke about it for the first time, I'd never even heard of bladder cancer. So tell us, first of all, how deadly is, is this disease? How many people are being affected in the United States and around the world? What is the survival rate? Why is it that we don't hear about this cancer if it's, if it's I think, what, the fifth fifth most prevalent cancer in, in the United States or something like that, right? In, in men, it is number five. In women, it's number eight. Uh, it's Hubert Humphrey had bladder cancer. He was running for president of the United States. He was advised to have his bladder removed and he'd be cured. He did not want to do that because he couldn't have a bag on the side and be running for president of the United States. So he had second line treatment, which was radiation, and he eventually died of bladder cancer. I know because I was doing some research and I was contacted by his doctors to see if there's anything I can do to help him when his cancer metastasized. The king of Norway has had his bladder out. You heavy cigarette smoker, no one knows about it. There is no poster boy for bladder cancer. And I wrote an article, where are the poster boys for bladder cancer? Because no one talks about it. It's like head and neck cancer. You see it occasionally now with lung, the Lung Association and the NCI has these pictures of people that have tracheostomies and can't breathe saying, don't ever smoke. But they don't say, if you smoke, you might get bladder cancer. So I always tell people that 75% of the patients I see, men and women, who have bladder cancer, cigarette smoking is in the background. So I think that's important. In fact, you can sue the tobacco companies now. There have been some multi-million dollar suits because they knew that they were providing Ooh. nicotine. They knew it caused cancer. And the reason is because you're smoking, the carcinogens in the smoke go into your lungs, go through your uh, kidneys, 
sit in the bladder for six, four, eight hours at a time, just like the sun is exposing you at the age of 20 and 30. And when do you get skin cancer? When you're 70 and 80. Same story. You smoke 20, 30s, even though you quit, you have a high chance or a chance of having bladder cancer, two to four times someone who doesn't smoke. So that's my little rant about people don't know about it until they get blood in the urine. Smoking is to some extent regional as well, globally. I think the United States has led the world in terms of reducing smoking. I, I, I think in, in general and new smokers, I, I know when I go to Europe, it's still a nightmare in some places where they haven't outlawed it, where everybody smokes and you get that smell on your shirt and your clothes that you never used to get, that you used to get when you were younger, well, when I was younger, which is, you know, a long time ago. <laughs> but you just, you, you're not used to that anymore. So it hits you. Latin American countries, for example, a lot of smokers. So I imagine there's higher incidence there. Um, but you're right. It's interesting. There is no poster child. It's like almost like people are embarrassed to have said they had bladder cancer. But Correct. there really is nothing embarrassing about it at all, is it? Is there? I mean, I, I don't think so. Particularly if we get it early, we can cure just about everybody. But too often, 25% of people who have bladder cancer come in when it's very advanced and removing your bladder or a combination of chemotherapy and radiation therapy is the only opportunity to cure those people. Well, what, what, are, what are the signs that somebody should look for early that there might be an issue with their bladder? Simple, blood in the urine. 90% of people with bladder cancer will either have obvious blood in the urine or certainly significant microscopic. When they did a urinalysis at their primary care and they find blood in the urine, even if they didn't see it, urine can look yellow, they will send the person or they should to a urologist. But most have blood in the urine as the initial sign. So we just talked about, uh, Jamie just mentioned the smoking piece. Is there a regionalization of bladder cancer? I mean, is it more prevalent in some countries or some cities or some states and others? I mean, what's the, where, where is the concentration? Yeah, the, the only state that really stands out or area, because also other carcinogens in the environment for the other 25%, and New Jersey, by chance, and when I drive through New everyone's, Jersey, everyone's picking on Jersey. Come on. Well, it's no surprise. Wait, which which exit is the bladder cancer exit? <laughs> Just so I know not to stop at that Wendy's. There you go. That's right. Yeah. So anyway, they have the highest incidence of bladder cancer because of all the refineries, et cetera. There. Yeah. And worldwide, is there any kind, any any area in the world that has is more concentration of, of Egypt? Cases? Bladder cancer is number one in Egypt initially because of a parasite in the bladder causing chronic infection, but more recently, over the last fifty years, very heavy cigarette smoking, which causes bladder cancer. It's the number one cancer in Egypt. So, wait, are you saying the bladder cancer can be caused by cigarette smoke or by a parasite? That's true. This particular parasite called Schistosomiasis lodges in the bladder and you that those patients have in, infections for years and years chronic infection can cause bladder cancer it just silenced me right at that moment because of how important it is yet how little we know about it now you talked about the relationship between men with bladder cancer and then women with bladder cancer and so what what do we find among women, because you said 80% of your patients or most patients in urology are, are men, but the in the, the other 20%, what are we seeing? Are we seeing the same types of trends or does it look different? Well, again, it's all related to smoking. 
So traditionally, men were much more likely to have bladder cancer because 50 years ago, mostly men were smoking. Mm. Remember, they could have stopped smoking 20 years ago, but you never get back to no likelihood of having bladder cancer. The smoking, just like the sun, I told you, you sit in the sun, you bake when you're 20s and 30s, you love going to the beach, and you pay for it when you're 60, 70 with skin cancer. One's, one will be on this side of the face, another in your left earlobe, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same thing. So uh, men and women can have bladder. Now, the incidence of women having bladder cancer has increased over time because they started smoking as well. And uh, what is the treat? What is the treatment if you catch it early? It sounds like if you catch it late, you have to remove the bladder, and then what? You have a tube that sticks out of the side of your body, and you urinate into a bag for the rest of your life. Uh, how, what are the treatments, and and what, 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 how bad does it get if you let it linger? All right. First thing first. Fifty to sixty percent of people who come in with blood in the urine, we what do we do? We look in the bladder with a cystoscope, a flexible scope that goes into the bladder very easily. Ouch, wait, wait, wait. How, how exactly do you get that into the body? Well, I need to know yeah. before we go any further, where yeah. exactly is that coming from and how is it getting into the system? The same way the urine comes out, it goes in the oh, same I, I, This podcast is already bothering me. <laughs> <laughs> I can okay. assure you it's relatively painless. We numb the urethra and we look in, it takes me exactly it only takes me three minutes and uh, we look in and if there's a tumor, we see it right away. Then the patient goes to the operating room, has the tumor removed the same way, going through the penis. We call it a transurethral resection of the bladder tumor. And then we find the extent, the grade and the stage. 70, 50, 60, 70% are low grade tumors confined to the surface. It's an entirely different kind of bladder cancer than the ones that grow into the wall. All cancers of the bladder, just like all cancers of the prostate, are not the same. And that's a very important thing for uh, individuals to know once they have, because people, when they walk in the door, you say the word cancer, they basically forget about everything else. Fortunately, most people will bring a significant other long. Yeah, because you, I would imagine you go numb. You can't, you, yeah. you, you, you panic, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So you have to be, first of all, the good thing about urology is you can almost always be very optimistic. Let's switch fairly quickly and I'll show you the analogy. If someone has low-grade prostate cancer, I can guarantee them they will not die of prostate cancer. Right away, that cuts through everything. We're going to take care of you. You may not need any treatment. So many people are aware that prostate cancer has changed dramatically in our concept of how to manage it. But just as if we do active surveillance or no treatment for low-grade prostate cancer, which is that, again, most of the public or many know about that, that we also have the same thing in bladder cancer. A high percentage of the people the men or women with bladder tumors, these look like coral in the bladder, the sea anemone, if you can imagine underwater. It looks the same. They're papillary. They don't grow into the wall of the bladder. And I've written a lot about this subject because they can take care of these with minimal treatment. And sometimes I, I'm the first person who wrote a paper in 2003 
saying that you can watch these. You do not have to remove it every time you see them, called active surveillance for bladder tumors. So that's the key of the urologist, the urologic oncologist, to understand the differences between these cancers, which one require intensive treatment and which one minimal treatment. And that's a very important judgment in the management, just like in many other fields, judgment is key. If, just to just to finish up, we're talking about treatment. Yeah. You just want to touch base because the United States has such a unique system of delivering health care. I assume anybody with insurance, anybody who has a job, Medicare, Medicaid, they all would cover any treatment if you're diagnosed with bladder cancer in this country? Absolutely. Yes. Well, I want to just expand on that because, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, there's been a big trend uh, towards online services that provide counsel. We, we've done a few shows on, on telemedicine uh, and location associated with um, having access to, 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 to sufficient health care, et cetera. Uh, but within the, um, the, the medical, the, the, the male physiological space, if you will, yeah. there are companies like Roman and companies like Hims and now hers that allow people to, to, to buy medication online without actually having to go and talk to a doctor. And I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And I just love to, to know your thoughts about it. Cause on one hand, it's creating some awareness around some of these issues. And so, yeah, I'm sure people are now more, more, um, uh, more, more aware of the, the issues, the, the, the pros and cons and benefits and perils uh, of, of medication and the things that happen to their bodies. But what do you think about the trend that's happening now where men are going online and seeking advice versus going into your office and talking to someone who's professional? Well, you may come the old school. Even during COVID, I refused to do telehealth because to me, that interaction is so important. If someone has a minor problem, you could get in and out quickly. If you have a serious problem, for instance, cancer, you don't want to have talked to someone on the phone. I need to know a lot about the patient. I need to physically examine the patient and be able to answer whatever question. There should be no time interval. I mean, it's not like a lawyer going on the clock. You're paying X amount of dollars per minute. This interaction to me is personal. You need to be in front of the patient. So that's my very strong feeling in that regard. For something, maybe just getting Viagra over the telephone. I mean, that's fine. Or the video, whatever you want to call it. That's kind of simple. You, you, as long as you can do uh, provisos, as little danger to the medication, that's fine if that's what they want. But most of the people I'm taking care of, even if it's not a terribly serious issue, meant that people are coming in because they're worried. And my job is they leave with a total understanding, even if it's a fairly severe problem, they're going to go out knowing that I'm not going to let them die from whatever they have. And in most cases, as a urologist, that's not going to happen. But they walk in pretty nervous. Well, you touched on a great point, which is bedside manner. I think it's so important. 
uh, how the doctor delivers news. I think seeing when I when I go and see my doctor, sometimes it might be more anxiety than anything else. And just ha- having a physical uh, meeting with the doctor, hearing that everything is okay, knowing that he actually saw you physically, heard you breathe with a stethoscope or whatever, uh, you know, did whatever test that you would do in your, your office uh to check that you're you know you're emptying completely something like that that just some of those things can just give you that boost you need to know that you're going to be okay and when it, things aren't going well and there are tough conversations it's even more important to have the right bedside manner to i think assure the patient that everything that can be done is being done and that you know so as as, as we take that thought and move forward going forward from here as we look at this 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 um this crusade of yours to get more of awareness out there for a bladder cancer. What, what do you think is the next stage is the future? Is it, is it trying to get more public awareness through government sponsored uh, public message going out there? Do we need, like you say, a spokesperson quote unquote for bladder cancer to get the word out? Do we need more money thrown at the issue or, or do we already know how to treat? We just need to be able to catch it early. What is the future here now in in your opinion? All right. I'll mention two things. Number one. Yes. I think a poster boy would be really helpful to say, if you have blood in the urine, you go see the doctor and that bladder cancer, if you catch it early, you're going to be cured for most cases. Now my rant is first of all, bladder cancer, is the number one most expensive cancer in the United States. Number one cancer cost-wise. Why? Because the prevalence of bladder cancer is super high. If you figure every year there are 80,000 new cases, but most of these people have small tumors, low-grade tumors, and they're going to live for 20 years, and they're going to have a cystoscope, that procedure you just said you're ready for anything, but you don't want that one. They're going to have that every three or four or six months for the rest of their lives or for many years, anyhow. And then there are all the treatments. So my rant would be to go to the people who take medic who deal with the reimbursement for Medicare. This is not going to be a popular statement. And say for low-grade tumors confined to the surface, if they're under a certain size, they should be taken care of or or improve the reimbursement to be taken care of in the office with a little office cauterization, not have to go to the hospital and spend ten dollars or $20,000 to put the patient to sleep. They would be equally successful in terms of eradicating the tumor. Yet, I know for sure in Australia, New Zealand, most of UK and Mexico, there is no ability to have these done in the office. And in the US, a high percentage of these people still go to the operating room. So in other words, if we can move a lot of the treatment to an outpatient basis, we can reduce the cost, reduce the stress level of the patient, and either keep outcomes the same or better. So it's a win-win for everybody. Absolutely. For this particular type of bladder tumor, which is not a minimal number of patients, it is a high percentage of the patients. And if our listeners want to get more information on bladder cancer or treatments, is there any place you suggest they go to get that kind of literature or learn about it or or, or symptoms to watch for, et cetera, if, if they don't have a primary care physician that is keeping them honest year in and year out with a urine test? Perfect. There is an organization 
called Beacon, B-C-A-N, Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, based in uh, Bethesda, Maryland. It was initially started by a bladder cancer survivor, unfortunately, subsequently died of metastatic bladder cancer. He and his wife, both attorneys, started this about 15 years ago. And now they would like to be like breast cancer, as, as you indicated earlier, and prostate cancer are these tremendous resources. So BCAN is a wonderful resource for bladder cancer information, videos, etc. Mark, this has been beyond eye-opening. Uh, you know, I want to thank you uh, for expanding on this prolific uh, topic. It's an important issue that we all need to take very seriously. So I want to thank you for your time and sharing with us and our listeners this important work. Yeah, I want to take my 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 moment to thank you as well, Mark. I, you are my urologist, so I, I'm not only thanking you for the personal care you bring to me, but hopefully um, some of our listeners have heard how empathetic you are about uh, treating people and providing quality care and good news to your patients, but even more importantly, for all the effort and work you have done to help in the treatment of this very dangerous cancer and in your help in getting the, the word out and creating more awareness. And we hope that this podcast will, will help in that regard. So thank you for coming on. No, I really appreciate the opportunity. You can tell I'm pretty passionate about this stuff. <laughs> no, that's what you need, right? And, and that's how that's how real change happens. When passionate people who are also intelligent about a topic, take the reins and run with it. Yep, yep, yeah, you can't give up. You've been listening to The Real Estate Podcast. Give us a quick review and rating on iTunes. Check out our website at therealestate.co and let us know if there are any new topics you'd like to hear us address. We love hearing your feedback. See you next week.